if you've got a Bible, why don't you grab it and turn to Mark chapter 14, where we've come to what might just be the most famous meal in human history. This is the story of the Last Supper Jesus shared with his disciples. Now, uh, supper is not a word that is typically in my vocabulary. Uh, but I've used that intentionally to try to trigger some imagery for you. Because uh, my guess is uh, you've probably seen a painting of this supper, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, what we're going to be looking at this morning is the story behind the painting. Um, or the several paintings. There are many that you may have seen. And what we're going to see in our text today is there's a reason that this meal is so famous. There's a reason we keep making paintings about it and, and songs about it. There's a reason that for 2,000 years... Christians from all around the world have entered into and celebrated this meal through a thing that we call communion. Um, now, depending on your church background, uh, communion might be one of the strangest things we do here. I mean, I don't know your background. Like, uh, maybe everything we do, maybe it's strange that we sing songs to a God in heaven here. I mean, there's a lot that's on the potential list of strange. But communion, I, I don't know about you, might be up there where the climax of our service, we take um, some bread and some juice and, and we take them together. Um, have you ever wondered, like, why do we do that? Um, or, or maybe some of you have wondered, like, what am I supposed to be doing during this time right now? Um, if you've ever wondered that, this is the message for you. Um, so with that said, if you've got a Bible, Mark chapter 14, we're going to dive in. We're going to see the story behind the Last Supper. And my hope and my prayer has been that we might enter into that time of communion more meaningfully uh, and that we might um, receive more from it um, that Christ would have for us. Are you ready? All right, Mark chapter 14. We will pick it up in verse 12 when I get there. All right, it says this. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and he said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where's my guest room? Where may I eat Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples sent out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Then they began to be sorrowful and said to one another, Is it? I? He said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into this dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to them. And he said, take, this is my body. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he had given it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink of it again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So here's what's going on in this story. 
Um, Jesus is taking an ancient meal and giving it new significance. And so I want to talk about those two things, ancient meal, new significance. Let's start with the ancient meal, because if you don't understand this ancient meal, you won't understand the significance uh, that Jesus is trying to communicate through this meal to you and to me today. Mark tells us it's the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is also known as Passover. Um, Have you heard of Passover before? Yeah. Um, This goes back to the second book of the Bible, where God's people are enslaved uh, in the land of Egypt, and they cry out to God for liberation, for freedom, and God hears their prayers, and he comes and he rescues them. Um, the Exodus is really um, kind of the center of the Old Testament. It's, it's the main act of redemption where God shows the world what he is like. That he's a redeemer who loves to deliver people from their burdens and, and bondage and to lead them into freedom. And so God knew how important this event, the Exodus, would be. And so on the night that it all happened, on the night that God rose up to deliver his people from slavery, what he told them, you can read the story in Exodus chapter 12, he told them, um, prepare a special meal uh, with unleavened bread. Uh, because I, I don't know if you bake much, the, the idea there is um, it takes time for bread to rise, for the leaven to work through. And he said, you're not going to have time for that. I'm going to come and act so decisively, you are going to have a chance to be free and to go. Just don't put leaven in your bread. Don't wait. You're going to be free from 400 years of slavery. You're going to go for it. So unleavened bread was a staple of the meal. The other thing they were told, though, is at the center of this meal, uh, they were to uh, kill a lamb. Sorry, vegetarians. Um, and and they, not only to eat it, I mean, this is tactile. This is, they were to kill the lamb and to take its blood and to um, put it on the doorpost of their house, which even if you're not like a pita-loving vegetarian, like that sounds a little nuts. Um, but the reasoning for that, if you read Exodus 12, is, um, well, they're putting this blood on the door is a sign um, so that when God visited his justice upon their oppressors, the people of Israel would be passed over, hence the name Passover, that their sin would not be brought into judgment, but that the lamb, by dying in their place, it shed blood, would take on their judgment in their place, and that they could be brought into a freedom that they didn't even deserve. That's the idea behind Passover, and, and that's exactly what happened um, on the, their last night in Egypt, God visits his justice upon the land. And everyone who listened to God, who, who trusted in him to be a redeeming, uh, saving God, who killed the lamb and put the blood on the door, when God's justice came to the land, it passed over them because the lamb died in their place, took on their sin so that they would not receive the judgment due their sin. And so God's judgment falls on the land of Egypt who had oppressed Israel for so long. The people of Israel receive grace and they walk out of the land of Egypt a free people. And and after this, um, God told them, have a big feast. That, That whole Passover thing, that wasn't just something you were doing the night of. This is something I want you to do every year. I want you to party. I want you to have a good time. I want you to make a big deal out of it. Because here's the whole idea in Exodus. What God is saying is, I want you to have a big party, have a big feast, so that you will remember this work of redemption. So that you will remember you didn't um, rise up and deliver yourself from slavery, that I did that. And so that you would remember what I'm like. Because he tells 
in advance, you're human. You're prone to forgetting. And so have this feast every year so that you remember, I'm your redeemer. I love you. I'm for you. It's not because you were awesome. It's because the Passover lamb died in your place. And so what Passover became was this central act in the life of the Jewish people to remember, here's what our God's like. He's on our side. He's good. He's worthy of our trust. He's worthy of our love. He is the object of our affection, and he alone can deliver us from our greatest enemies. This is what Passover is all about. And so that's what the people did for 1,500 years. Every year when it came this time of the year, they would celebrate the Passover feast. And um, it was a big party. It was a big deal. And um, sometimes I think they like knew how to party better than we do today back in Bible days. If you read the Old Testament, this is on and on and on again. I mean, they go all out for this stuff. And now they had their issues back then just like we do today. But I'm just like, I don't know. I think we could, someone should write the book on partying according to the Bible. I think that'd be really fun. Um, happens for 1,500 years. Um, and then even after the exile where um, the Jewish people are taken out of the land, uh, and then it's kind of taken over by foreigners, um, you, you see every year pilgrims would journey back to the city of Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. We talked about this earlier in this series, that uh, at this time of year, this population in Jerusalem would swell from somewhere around 40,000 people um, to upwards of 2 million people. As pilgrims came from all over and said, we not only want to throw a big party, we want to throw a big party where the temple is, where God's presence is. We want to go all out. And so this is the time of year. It's the Passover feast. And so I just want you to picture the scene when all of this takes place. Two million people in town. Um, It's the day that the Passover lamb is being slaughtered. That's a lot of Passover lambs being slaughtered, right? What do you think it sounded like? What do you think it smelled like. Um, This was a busy, maybe chaotic day of preparation. Everyone's trying to get ready for the big party that night. And on the night when they're slaughtering the Passover lamb, Jesus says to his disciples, hey, go into the city. And when you go into the city, you're going to see a guy and follow that guy home which would sound weird in every other context if this didn't just happen a few chapters earlier, a few days earlier when they entered the city of Jerusalem. He says, follow that guy home, and you're going to say to him, hey, where's Jesus supposed to eat Passover? And he'll be like, hey, here's the room I've prepared for you. Which again, sounds wild, but if you weren't here, go back, Mark 11. This is the second time in the course of one week that this has happened where Jesus had said, just go, tell him I want it, it's all going to work out. And that's exactly what happens. They follow this guy to his house, And rather than be like, hey, what are you doing intruding upon my property? It's like, oh, Jesus wants it. Here's the room. I've got it ready for you. He leads them to this lush room where they can celebrate Passover together, where they can celebrate this ancient meal that's designed to help them remember God's love and grace and his power and his commitment to them. Only this night was different. See, um, over the years, uh, the Jewish people developed some traditions around how they would celebrate Passover. Um, Just like I think we have, right? Like you have rituals around how you celebrate your big holiday meals like Thanksgiving or Fourth of July, right? Yeah, a few of us have some rituals. I certainly do. Um, And it it was the same for the Jewish people. They had certain things they would do when they would celebrate Passover. One, for example, was uh, the youngest person present would ask um, the oldest, or um, shall I say the wisest person present, hey, hey, why do we celebrate 
this meal? What gives with the Passover lamb? And, and the oldest person present, the wisest person, would recount everything I just said about the exodus and God's grace and God's commitment and his one-way love for them. And then they would um, drink wine, which I don't know what you do with that. Fruit of the vine is not grape juice. They would drink wine together, four rounds of it. Um, and then uh, at the end of that, they would sing because they were merry. I don't know. Um, that just got really tense in here. <laughs> uh, but in so much of that's present in our text here, right? Uh, you've got, uh, there is wine, they're drinking. Uh, we're going to see in verse 26, it ends with singing. But at the center of the meal is they celebrate this ancient ritual, this ancient meal. Jesus says something totally radical. Rather than point back to the Exodus, when the disciples would have asked, hey, why, Jesus, why are we celebrating this meal? Teacher, what are we doing here? Rather than point back to what God did in Egypt, he points forward to the cross. And, and what he says is, um, after blessing the bread, he says, take this. This is my body, which is about to be broken for you. I mean, can you imagine if someone came to your house for Thanksgiving, and, and when you sat down and prayed and blessed the meal, they said, I'm just so glad you could all come together to celebrate my big promotion at work. You'd be like, this isn't about you. This is much older than you. This is much bigger than you. But what Jesus is doing is he's taking an ancient meal and he's giving it new significance. He says, yeah, that, that was about that, but that was just a shadow. What this meal has always been about is me. Which sounds arrogant if you're anybody but the Son of God come into the world to save us from their sins from our sins. He takes the cup that for 1,500 years represented the blood of the Passover lamb that was shed to redeem Israel from her sins so that they could experience liberation and freedom instead of bondage and slavery. He takes that cup and he says, that was just a shadow. This cup is actually about my blood that is about to be poured out for the redemption of so many more for a greater redemption than anything that happened in Egypt. What he's doing by taking this Passover meal and pointing instead of backwards but forward to the cross is what he's saying is, uh, I'm the true Passover lamb that has come into the world to take away your sin. Um, I have come to accomplish a greater redemption than everything that happened in Egypt. Great as that was, the Israelites were freed from physical bondage and slavery. But go read the book of Exodus. The second they get out the other side of the Red Sea, you can see they're still enslaved to patterns of sin and frustration. I mean, literally, the, the leader of the people is like, God, I can't believe that I have to be with these people. They're a bunch of complainers and whiners, and this is just awful. They're free from physical bondage, but still sin has a grip on their heart. And even that leader that's like, God, these guys sure complain a lot. Um, he actually, in his frustration, like, bats and, like, hits a rock and is like, come on, what's wrong with you people? And God has some things to say to him about that as well. Uh, here, here's the big idea. Um, it's one thing to be physically free from sin. But the hope had always been that one would come and free us from our true enemies, Satan, sin, and death. 
that one would come and redeem us from the bondage that we have given ourselves over to through our own sin, through our own idolatry, that one would come and fix, not the external only, not that the external doesn't matter, but give us a a whole salvation that would go to the level of the heart, that one would come to redeem us from our bondage to Satan, sin, and death, and to give us a new heart that can live for the freedom that we ultimately long for. And what Jesus is saying is that's the redemption that's finally here. The hope of the prophets, the hope of thousands of years of redemptive history, it's about to happen. My blood is about to be poured out for you and you will be free. I mean really free. Free from the things that really keep you down. Free from your real problems. And look, none of this would make sense to these guys. Just like Jesus' past few predictions about his death, even when he says the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We read that on this side of the cross with perfect hindsight, and we're like, how did these guys miss that? Well, they didn't have perfect hindsight. They're in the midst of it. This stuff did not make sense to them after Jesus until after Jesus died and rose again. But here is the point. When Jesus had one last chance to explain his coming death to his disciples, he did not give them one final sermon. He gave them a meal. And as a preacher, I find that really profound. Because there's nothing I think can't be fixed by talking more at it. Um, Few of you feel me on that. Uh, And as a Christian, regardless of your personality type, I think we should be fascinated by that. Why? I mean, Jesus has given sermons on this. He has certainly taught them everything I just said. But on the night he is betrayed, and there is some teaching going on here, but it's more than teaching. He takes an ancient meal and infuses it with new significance. Why not just give one last sermon? Maybe that would have been the time they finally get it. Well, I think Mark tells us why. Look at verse 26. Because spoiler alert, I think Jesus knows what he's doing. Verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. I love this guy. Those guys, Jesus, junior varsity, not me. Verse 30, and Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. They all said the same. Um, After dinner, uh, they head out to the Mount of Olives. Um, and, and here's what Jesus says along the way is, is they leave the Last Supper and go to the Mount of Olives. He says, guys, I know that each and every one of you is about to fall away. I know that when things get hard in the next 24 hours, when you are put to the test, rather than stand by my side, you're going to abandon me, you're going to deny that you know me. 
and, and, and they say, Jesus, we would never do that. Every single one of them, Mark tells us, they all said the same. Peter might have been the most vocal about it, but they all said, Jesus, no way will we ever abandon you. We love you. We're on your side. How's that one work out for them? Come back next week if you want to find out. Nugget. And, and here's the thing. Jesus knows this. He even says, the, first of all, the scriptures predicted it. Second of all, I'm God, and so I know this. Um, he knows that they're about to fail him. He knows what's waiting for him in the garden. He predicted his betrayal last week and this week. He knows what's coming. And so knowing what's coming, Jesus speaks this incredible word of grace to these guys. He says, I know that when the going gets tough, you're going to abandon me. But don't worry, I'm not going to abandon you. You you remember the whole body broken for you, blood shed for you? I'm going to take that on to myself. And when I rise again, I'm going to go before you to Galilee and we'll be together again. It's all going to be okay. So before they ever betray him, he speaks grace and says, I know you're going to fail, but this is how it works with me. If you haven't picked up after three years, you bring all the sin, I bring all the redemption, and together we do something great in the world. I know you're going to fall away, but don't worry. I'm going to go ahead of you into Galilee, and it's all going to be okay. But these guys, they can't fathom it. Like, no way. Jesus, there's no way we could ever fail you like that. This will never happen, Jesus. And I think they can't fathom it because here's what I found. Sometimes words alone aren't enough. Um. Something rather shocking happened in my house a couple weeks ago. Uh, our oldest daughter hit her sister. Now, some of you from the giggles are like, that's Tuesday in my house. What are you talking about incredible? Uh, what you need to know about our oldest is she's a type A rule follower. Um, she makes lists for fun. She is the child who will say, Dad, I'm not sure Mom wants us doing that. <laughs> all right? So I, all of that to say, her struggle with sin, it's, it's, it's less with breaking the rules as it is not being harsh and judgmental with those who do. Are you with me? Um, I say all this so that you will understand um, why I was so shocked when we were hanging out in our backyard a couple weekends ago, and the girls were jumping on the trampoline, and I'm doing yard work. The sun was shining. It was a great day. It was a great day. Um, and then I heard some fighting over something. I don't know. There was some elevated voices, some escalated dialogue. And um, I didn't look up. I mean, it's three kids on a trampoline, right? So I'm doing my yard work. I don't even look up. I'm like, they'll figure it out. Some of you are judging me right now. Uh, that's okay. Uh, <laughs> Um, but, but that's when I heard it. Um, that's when I heard a loud scream, and so I'm like, okay, I, I gotta go figure out what's going on. So I get up, and I look up, and that's when I, when I see it. Maddie hit me. And as I look at the three of them, um, Maddie looks more surprised than I do in this moment. Um, so I took off my belt, and I was like, don't do that! I'm kidding. 
<laughs> I'm totally kidding. That got so tense in here just now. No, no, I picked her up out of the trampoline and, and I, I took her inside just to talk about what had happened because like she obviously couldn't believe that she did it. She's like, what are these things here for? And so I take her inside to just talk to her about what happened. Um, but the second we get inside, um, because we're an Asian household, so we take our shoes off. So I, I get her inside and I'm taking my shoes off and the kid just books it. She starts running. What in the world? I kind of chase her down, and I get on her level, and I say, okay, who am I? Dad. (laughs) How much do I love you? And she couldn't even say it. It's like you could tell. She was just like, I can't believe this just happened. I had such high standards for myself. She couldn't. And so I'm a preacher, so I gave her a three-point sermon on her three ways. But the words weren't doing anything. So I picked her up and I hugged her. And finally she began to relax in my arms. And then we had a great conversation. Here's the point. Um, words alone were not enough to comfort my little girl. Um, she needed a hug from dad to do that. She needed me to wrap my arms around her and tell her, I love you. That's not changed my mind about you. In fact, I thought it was great to see you stand up for yourself. I'm kidding. I didn't say that. Um, words alone weren't enough to reassure her, but picking her up, that's what, it, that's what reassured her. And, and that's what this meal is all about. Um, listen to how Tim Chester puts it in his book, Truth We Can Touch. He says this, um, Perhaps it should have been enough for God simply to tell us what he had done. Perhaps it should have been enough for us to simply exhort one another to remember God's grace. But God in his kindness, knowing how frail we are, knowing how battered by life we can be, also gives us physical reminders of his grace in water, that's a reference to baptism, bread, and wine. That's what this meal is about. It's Jesus picking up our faces when we go, I can't believe I did that. It's in picking up our face and saying, that's not bigger than my cross. I I know you're ready to give up on you. I'm not ready to give up on you. My blood was shed so that you could be free of that. Don't be burdened for what I have already paid for. That's what this meal is about. And he knows that we need this. He knows that we are like the disciples. That when we fail, we can almost be in denial about it. And so he gives us this meal to do what words alone cannot, to go deeper, to lift up our faces, and to remind us of who our God is and what he is like and what his heart towards us is like. And and I think it's brilliant that Jesus does this because here's what I found. I I don't know. You could tell me if you think this is true. What I found is if you've been coming to church for any amount of time, um, you probably know the gospel in your head pretty well. Um, I hope that if you've been coming here for a year, you could tell me what the gospel is after week in and week out hearing of what Christ has done for us. I think we tend to know the gospel in our heads. Um, But I think quite often we believe it very little in our hearts. 
Um, it's one thing to be able to fill out a statement of faith that says, I believe that Jesus is God entered into human history to take on my sin so that I could be free from the bondage of Satan's sin and death and to rise again to eternal life in his kingdom in a restored world forever. It's one thing to be able to put that on a statement of faith. It's another thing to live in light of that reality. And what I find is, um, as I'm talking to people about problems in their life, or frankly, as I look at my own life, it's very easy to believe that on paper. It's another thing to live in light of that and to live on Monday in light of that and to let that be the center that drives our life. I mean, think about it this way. Would you sin as often as you do if you really believe that God is a liberator, that he is for you, that he is for your flourishing, that he's not waiting for you to measure up, he's already done everything necessary, that he's crazy about you, and he wants to lead you more and more into wholeness. Would you look to false messiahs to the degree that you do if you believe that? I wouldn't. And so he gives us the bread and the cup to remind us, I am good, I am for you. I'm not a barrier to your joy. I'm going to remove every barrier from your deepest flourishing and joy. I'm after your good. But, but I think we tend to know that in our heads. We tend not to believe it with our lives. And, and so inevitably what happens is we look to something else. We go, man, God's not going to give me the good I want, but maybe my job will. Maybe my spouse will. Maybe my house will. Maybe all these other things will. And so we inevitably sin. We put um, divine pressure on finite created things that in and of themselves might be fine. They just make crummy gods. So we act like crazy people. We expect divine things from human things. And, and here's what happens. I mean, tell me I'm not alone on this. Then we sin, and the thing that we're most prone to doing is we run from God instead of running toward him when we need him most. Anyone been there? where you realize what you're done and you're like, are you kidding me? I can't believe I did that again. I can't believe I fell for that again. When am I going to learn? When am I going to get better? And instead of running to God and thanking him for his grace and receiving his undeserved love that he has given to us in Christ, we tend to run and try to clean ourselves up and say, I'll, I'll read my Bible more. I'll kind of get more into a good rhythm. And then once I do, then I'll go back to God with my resume of why he should accept me back and go, I know that was bad, but look it, I shared my faith this week. Doesn't that, like if this person's in heaven, doesn't that kind of outweigh my sin over here? And the problem is when you run from God instead of toward him, you end up like Judas instead of the 11. Where you don't repent of your sin, you fall away in it. Instead of coming in repentance and receiving grace and receiving a new life and becoming a new person by grace. And this is why Jesus gave us this meal. If you read John's account, Judas actually peaced out at the end of dinner, so he missed this whole discussion of grace because he had it in him to betray Jesus. But the eleven, they heard this discussion of grace, and though they sinned really, really great, Jesus' cross was greater still. And accomplished a greater redemption to where they're telling the story. To where Mark is relying off Peter's eyewitness testimony. Where Peter's like, and then, Mark, you're not going to believe this, but you need to write it down. I told Jesus, I will never betray you. Only the grace of God can free us to be that honest with our sin. Otherwise, we just pretend it's not there and blame everybody else. But this is why Jesus gave us this meal. To be a tangible expression 
his presence, his love, and his grace that goes deeper than words will go. Because here's what I know as a pastor and a preacher. I can tell you that God loves you in spite of what you've done this week. And your reaction might be, okay, he's talking to everyone else but me. We are so often, like my oldest daughter, like the 12. I can't believe I did that. Running from God when we need him most. Instead of believing that if the gospel's true, then I can run to him and receive the grace and the help I need in this moment. And Jesus has given us communion to be a tangible expression of that. To be that arms around us that says, I know you can't believe you right now, but I believe you. That's the whole reason I came. Communion is this, um, it's a tangible expression of the gospel that we preach. That's the idea behind the word sacrament. Um, That might sound like really churchy to you or like high churchy, like, whoa, I thought I was in a non-denominational or a Baptist church. They just said sacrament. Let me define the word because all Christians would agree with this essential concept. A sacrament is a physical sign of a spiritual reality. Um, it's It's like the arms around. It's a physical embodiment of a spiritual truth. See, we tend to think, um, I know that might sound like voodoo to us, because as modern people, we're all children of the Enlightenment. We tend to think of truth as something that only resides in the realm of the mind. But people in Jesus' day, they had no such superstitions. They understood that humans are more than our mind that we are embodied creatures. And so what happened in the mind matters. It's real, it's important, but it's not all that matters. We are embodied humans who experience truth through words. So words are important, but we also need to experience truth embodied to wrap our whole self around it. This is why me telling my freaking out daughter, I love you, isn't enough in that moment because she's not a brain on a stick. She's not a computer program that I can just program information at. She is an embodied creature that needs the words, but she needs that wrapped in something to really wrap her minds around it. And you and I are the same way. We are no different. This is why Jesus gave us this meal. So that we could, um, we heard at the top of service, taste and see that the Lord is good. That's not just a metaphor. That is actually saying in communion, as we take the bread and the cup, we can taste with our senses, on our tongue, that Jesus' commitment to us is that strong, that in this meal it is meant to be a tangible expression of the gospel that we cherish and hear preached every week. This meal is the place where the arms of Jesus can wrap around us and minister to our whole self in a way that words alone never could. Now, um, let me just say this. It's not always going to be this way. Um, I was thinking this week, I'm like, you know what? Communion is really incredible. But you know what would be better than communion? To sit at the table with Jesus, right? Like, these guys had it pretty good. But if you look at verse 25, Jesus actually says, there is a day coming 
where his kingdom will wash over this world, will make everything new. And on that day, just like the prophets said, God's people will dine with him at his table. We will be bodily present with Jesus one day. That is the day that is coming. That is the promise of scripture. But until then, Jesus keeps us walking He keeps us enduring. He keeps us believing and hoping and trusting in that over all the lesser salvations of this world by giving us communion. Where in a moment, he can bend heaven and earth together and give us a glimpse of the world that's coming. And so there is a day coming when we will eat with Jesus at his table, which is absolutely fascinating. It's how the Bible ends. But until then, we, like the people of Israel, can taste of this meal and see and know with our five senses that our God is good, he is for us. In some way, God uses that to work this truth deeper into our soul right where we need it most. This is why uh, Christians have celebrated, the first Christians celebrated this meal every time they gathered. Um, because they knew we need this reminder. They knew we need this. And I'll, I'll just be honest with you. As I've been thinking about this, I wonder if maybe we've lost some of that understanding. Where I don't know if it's just because we're modern people and we have a very thin view of humanity that thinks only of the mind and not of the whole person. But I think maybe it's more complicated than that. And I don't want to try to dissect all the reasons. But I will say that If you look at the book of Acts, if you look at the early church, they place such an emphasis on this meal. And I feel like maybe we've lost something that they had. They saw such importance to it, and I wonder if we've missed something. And look, I'm not saying that we should replace the preaching of the word with communion. Um, Because, man, if you read church history, the church has certainly erred in that direction, where the gathering was all about this meal, and very little, if any, were intelligible words were spoken, and that led to a period of history known as the Dark Ages. So I'm not advocating for that. But at the same time, I will say that if words were enough, I don't think Jesus would have repurposed Passover on his last night with his friends. Are you with me? Gospel preaching is essential, and that will always be central to what we do here. So this is not the last sermon you're going to, sorry, this is not the last sermon you're going to hear. But so are the sacraments that Jesus has given us. Baptism and communion. And if you want to know about baptism, we actually have a baptism class going on. So here's a little plug for that. Sign up for the baptism class. Would love to talk about that sacrament with you there. But this message is about communion. It is about this meal that we celebrate where we take and remember the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus for us through partaking of bread and the cup together. And so as we go to respond to this story, I I just want to ask you some questions. I, I want... And you don't need to answer these out loud. I'm always encouraging out loud. I just want to encourage you to be introspective for a moment. I mean, you can do whatever you want. But how essential would you say communion is to you? Do you look forward to it when you come on Sundays? Have you ever left a church over preaching? 
have you ever left a church over communion? Is this part of what you think about on your drive here? I can't wait to take this together. Because if not, I wonder if it's possible maybe that there is more in this sacrament than you know. I wonder if there's, it's possible that there's more going on in this meal than you have experienced. I wonder. And, and, and here's how to know if there's more here than you've experienced. And look, I'm well aware some of you have been walking with Jesus longer than I've been alive. But I believe that Jesus is really, really big. His love is really, really profound. And there's always more of him to know. And as I was preparing how to land the plane on this message, I really felt like God saying he might have more for us in this table than we have experienced. And so here's how you can find out. If you would come to the table this morning expecting more from this, if you came expecting that when you take these elements this morning, that the Spirit of God might bend heaven and earth together in such a way that you taking these elements, it's not just you conjuring up things you're remembering about God, but in that moment as you take it, Jesus might be present with you through his Spirit in a way that he's doing something to you, that he's comforting you, that he's wrapping his arms around you, and you're just there crying like, I need it. I need to receive it. You bring your pain, your fears, your worries, and Jesus brings something in this table. And look, after I, I said that, I've been saying on repeat, I think, come to the table this morning. Um, because here's the thing, after two years of doing communion under pandemic settings, we're going to try something new this morning. We are going to be getting away from prepackaged Jesus towards some more substantive bread that we can actually taste this morning. Now, I'm not dogging on the prepackaged stuff. Thank God he made it available to us in very strange times. But if the big idea of this text is that Jesus gave us communion so that we could taste his grace, we want to do communion in a more substantive way that we could actually taste something. And again, look, it, the power is not in the elements themselves. There are some Christians that have taught that. Um, you could ask about it in the Q&A. Um, I promised that Karen I wouldn't get into that in this message, that rabbit trail. Does that count? Um, the power's not in the elements. The power's in Jesus, who's ruling and reigning through heaven, and that when we come by faith, he does something in us. Now, the reason we are going forward is I think that it can just get us out of this being a rote thing where we just sit in our seats and it almost becomes this very individualistic thing where we take it, some weeks we forget to, let's be honest. What we see in the New Testament, this could be its own sermon, is that actually communion is it's named communion because it's something communal that we come together and take of the body and blood of Jesus together. That this is our hope, this is what unites us. It dang sure isn't our political preferences or our um, age or our backgrounds. Like, man, th this table is what unites us. And so what we're going to be trying is this new thing where we come forward and take communion together. 
And so if I could just be dad for a moment, just kind of put my dad thing on, um, we would ask that you would come down the aisles this way to take communion. You grab from the tables and then you go back that way. I guess that's less dad and more flight attendant. <laughs> but then you come down so we could have somewhat of an orderly flow. And when you come down to the table, grab your bread, dip it in the cup. The cup is grape juice, not wine. I know some of you are surprised after what I've said this morning. We're trying to honor the conscience of all. That's why we also have gluten-free bread available to you. Um, So to take the bread, to dip it in the cup, and to taste and see this morning that the Lord is good. I believe if we come in faith and expect more, the Holy Spirit's going to do something in us. And not just today, I believe this could be a new day for us where this truly becomes the climax of our service. Where maybe a year from now you would say, I can't imagine church without communion with my brothers and sisters in Christ because God does something to me there and I needed his arms wrapped around me because I had a heck of a week. My hope is you'll get to Wednesday and sin so bad that you're like, I can't wait to go take communion at church on Sunday. Can we do a prayer meeting tonight? That's my hope. And so um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray for us. And just after I pray, I just want you to take some time and consider your heart before the Lord. Where do you need to know his love this morning? Where is it that you're running from him and you just need to receive something that goes deeper than my words ever could? Where do you need the Holy Spirit to drive the love of Christ deeper into your soul this morning? And then when you are ready... I don't want to rush you. When you are ready, come forward and taste and see that he is good, that he is gracious, that he is for you. And there's nothing you can confess to him this morning that will change his mind about you or surprise you. But he actually has more grace for you than you could even imagine. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll give you some time to do that. Jesus, you are so good. Thank you for not only loving us to hell and back. Thank you for not only being willing to die in our place so that we could be free, so that we could have life, but for knowing us. You're not only a great savior, you are a great lover who knows us deeply. You know our shortcomings. You know our limitations. And so you've given us something incredible in this meal. Thank you for this meal you've given us. Um, Jesus, I ask that as we come and share in this meal this morning, that you would do something profound. Um, God, I, I want our church to be unexplainable apart from this table. Would you take the truth of the gospel that maybe some of us have known for decades and years and make it more real? Would you wrap your arms around us this morning as we come to the table? Would you nourish us on this meal this morning that we might walk out of here more alive, more free, and that this meal we celebrate every Sunday as your people might spill over into meals of grace around our tables all week long where we, just like you, invite outsiders and sinners like us into our table to see about life in your kingdom, to see about your grace, and maybe they might come too like us to come and taste and see that you're good at this table here. Would you enlarge in our tables and our church and our impact in this valley through what you do at this table here? 
We ask these things in your beautiful name. Amen.